This is a rare occasion, people. I'm preaching. I've got notes. I usually preach without notes, but there's a lot of detail I want to bring out of this story, and I've got seven pages of notes. So if I get confused up here, yeah. Um, this is my favorite story in the Bible because I identify with this story. Um, the story of Peter's fall and restoration. It's just a, a beautiful, beautiful story of God's grace. Um, have you ever been there? Have you ever had that moment in life where you blew it bad? You did that thing that you swore you'd never do, or you went to that place, you, you, know, you really stepped in it bad. When I was a kid, I worked on a dairy farm. My first day on the dairy farm, we were down below and had a, we were trying to get silage to go up into the silo, and there was this thing that you know, blew the silage up there, and it was rattling around, and there was a big cover on the side. It was just really just shaking loose, and the guy, the farmer told me to go in the bottom floor of the barn there and get a roll of twine that was on a shelf, and I'd never been in that part of this barn. And it's where they kept a dairy farm. You know, that's where they kept all the cattle. And, you know, you can imagine what they put out. Okay? It's on the floor. And apparently that's very valuable stuff. Because as I'm walking across the floor there in about maybe an inch and a half, two inches of cow manure, I discovered that there's a trench in the middle of that floor that goes down about 30 inches. Yeah. There I am, 13 years old, walking across this thing, and all of a sudden, I have stepped in it bad. I am literally up to my hip in cow manure, and I fell over into it. Was, it was bad. It was one of those days, you know? Have you had one of those days in your spiritual life? Yeah, well, this is, spir- this is Peter's stepping in it bad. You know, when, when Jesus was arrested... There was a bit of swordplay there. It wasn't all a peaceful encounter, was it? I mean, they came to him with sticks and clubs and swords and lanterns to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, expecting some kind of pushback. Do you think that they had reason to expect this? I mean, even Jesus' disciples during his ministry, they were arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they were not picturing this as some far distant event that's going to happen sometime in the, in the distant future. They're talking right here, right now. They, the disciples believed that Jesus was going to, was going to inaugurate his kingdom, the, the messianic kingdom, right there, right then. They had that expectation. And Jesus preached, told them again and again and again, no, I have to suffer. I have to go through. The nation of Israel has rejected me as Messiah. I have to go through this suffering. And they're like, no, no, no. You don't get it, Jesus. You just don't get it. We know who you are. We know what you can do. And you're going to bring in your, your, your kingdom? So you can imagine with this kind of thought running around what the people who went to arrest Jesus thought was going to happen. That they're thinking this guy thinks he's going to institute the kingdom. There might be a fight, so they come with weapons. They come with all that. And it's interesting. Now, the the, the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
If you read them, they pretty much tell the same story. If you read all three of them, in fact, there's parallel Bibles where you can have the same incidents. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written out there. And what most scholars believe is that Mark was written first because it includes the least amount of information, okay, and the least amount of detail, and that Mark was associated with, the, with Peter. As Peter was t- uh, teaching and preaching, this was the story that he told of Jesus' life in times and, and his miracles and things like that, and that Mark wrote this down. Now, a date for Mark is as early as 52 A.D. Jesus is crucified, just make the math simple, around 33 A.D., there's some debate about these dates, okay? But around 33 A.D., Jesus was about 33 years old when he was crucified. And Mark is writing about 20 years. The, the, the gospel of Mark is written down about 20 years after that. So we're not talking a large time gap here. 20 years is not a long time. I mean, I'm, my, my son is 21. Yesterday, he was this little guy, right? It goes by quick. But 20 years is not all that long. That's about as, as old as... Is Daniel here. Now, it's interesting when Mark talks about the sword play in the garden. Mark, you don't have to, now don't, I'm going to use a lot of verses from different books here. You don't have to turn to all of them, okay? You can, I will gladly give you the references if you want to check up. I've got seven pages of note. I, I can email you this whole list, okay? Mark says, the men seized Jesus and arrested him then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The Greek here, where it says one of those standing near, literally means a bystander, someone who was standing near. That's kind of vague, isn't it? That's like saying some dude. Yeah, you know, Jesus was resting, some dude just whipped out a sword and chopped off the high priest's servant's ear. One who was standing near. There's some social distance there. Okay, and we'll get to the reason for that here in a minute. Matthew, now remember, Matthew and Luke both wrote, having had Mark in their possession or had read Mark, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, they're using this as an outline and they're expanding on it. Mark, Matthew is writing this for a Jewish audience and explaining things to the Jewish audience. Luke is pretty much explaining things to a Gentile audience. And Luke also says that he investigated these things. So he's going around talking to the people that were in the book of Mark and the, and the various people as he encounters them. And he's asking them questions. Explain this. Okay, you, you, you were there, you know? And he's writing these extra details down. So you get more information out of, out of Luke sometimes. Matthew 26, 51 says... With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Matthew doesn't, it kind of shortens that social distance. It's not a bystander or someone who was there. It's one of Jesus' companions. This guy is associated with Jesus somehow. One of those with Jesus, it says. Okay, this leaves the identity sufficiently vague, but still associates this person with Jesus. Luke 22, 49 through 51, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. So now we have one of Jesus' followers. And you also have this added detail. When they see what's coming down, there was a question that was raised, do we fight? And this guy, whoever he was, according to Luke, Luke doesn't identify him, didn't wait for the answer. He just goes ahead and acts. Okay, and one of them, who was the most impulsive of the disciples? <laughs> Do we have any? Is there a clue there, maybe, that, that, that this guy didn't even wait for the answer? He just uh, acts. But Jesus answered no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. 
That's cool. You know what I mean? Jesus touches the man's ear and heals him. And if you look at the, it doesn't say he picked up the ear off the floor. All right? I mean, we're going to get do some CSI stuff here today and try and figure out this crime scene a little bit. But uh, it's interesting that there, there's even less social distance in Luke, which is written probably the, the latest uh, or the farthest away from the event. But he also has that detail of, of the, the disciples asking, do we do this? And this person apparently slicing and dicing before he gets an answer, and then Jesus heals the ear. Have you ever seen a head wound? I mean, hopefully you haven't. Hopefully you haven't. If you've ever seen a head wound, they're bleeders. They bleed a lot. The head has a lot, a lot of blood supply. Okay, so it's a really kind of scary thing when anyone gets a head wound, and we'll have more on that later. Now the rest of the story. The Gospel of John was written long after these events. The Gospel of John was written very late, and it doesn't follow the same storyline as the Synoptic Gospels, but there are certain things which are recorded in all four of the Gospels, and this is one of those stories where John thought it was important enough to include this story. Now, John was, a, was part of the very inner circle. He was a close friend of Jesus, right there with Peter. Peter and John, you know, they, they were very, very close friends, and uh, it's interesting that the Synoptic Gospels don't include the name of the swordsman anywhere. The Synoptic Gospels don't include a couple other things, like the uh, raising of Lazarus. Raising Lazarus from the dead, who was the brother of Mary and Martha, who lived in Bethany. All that information comes from John. The, gospel, the Synoptic Gospels mention Martha and Mary, but they don't mention where they live, and they don't mention their brother. Because there was a plot to kill Lazarus, if you recall, that John talks about. There was a plot to kill Lazarus because he was created quite a stir. And Mary and Martha lived in Bethany, which is only two miles away from Jerusalem. It's literally, you walk out of Jerusalem two miles and you're in Bethany. Very close by. And the, the Synoptic Gospels do not record the, that detail of where Mary and Martha live. So as not to create trouble for them while they are still living. The same reason why they don't record that it was Peter... Because John lays it right out here. John 18.10, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. A detail Luke also includes. How can John all of a sudden just, just blow the lid on his brother Peter, his close friend Peter? Well, John's writing after Peter had already been, died, had been crucified. He's writing after Peter had died. He's writing after Mary and Martha and Lazarus have already gone on to their natural end. And it's okay, it's safe, we can talk about it now. When I was a kid, we were out playing Frisbee one time in the backyard, and we heard this sound coming from the house. And we're like, what is that? It's the smoke alarm. We had just installed the smoke alarm two weeks before. We'd never heard it. And we go running in, and the kitchen, there's smoke is like this high in the kitchen. The garbage can is completely in flames. There's a paper towel rack above it, which is starting to burn on a wooden shelf and everything. And we go nuts. Me and my, I have two brothers, you know. So we went in and put that fire out, aired the house out, you know. My parents come home from work, like, what happened here? We're like, yeah, the kitchen caught on fire. We had no idea how it happened. We're out in the backyard throwing a frisbee, literally. And 
it must have been 20 years later, 15, 20 years later, sitting around Thanksgiving dinner, and my mom brought up this story about how the kitchen almost caught on fire. My younger brother, Carl, police officer, he says, yeah, that was me. <laughs> you know, just tosses that out there. Yeah, that was me. We thought it was a kid down the street that lit his own house on fire. We kind of snuck in and tried to burn our house down, too. And, you know, it was Nick Messina. You know, that was the guy who did it, sure. All those years, it was Nick. It was Nick. No, Carl's like, no, it was me. The Frisbee had gotten kind of ragged on the edges, and he went and he got one of those big kitchen matches, and he kind of lit it around the, burned the, the edge to soften, you know, smooth it out. And he shook it out, and he said he tossed it in the trash can, and it landed on a piece of paper from like a, like a hoagie wrapper, sandwich wrapper, you know, it was like the oil. And he said when he looked at it, he thought, I should make sure that's out. And then he went out and threw the Frisbee, because that's, that's what you do when you're 12, you know. And yeah, it was me. And that's kind of like what John's doing here. It's like, yeah, that was Peter. Yeah, Peter. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I mean, he's dropping names here. Attacker and victim. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the, the cup the Father has given me? Now, Peter died between AD 64 and 68. John admits here to being an eyewitness to a crime which carries the death penalty. Okay, what Peter did there is no small thing. He cut a man's ear off. Now, that's not, he didn't grab the guy and, like, he's not trying to make a point with violence here. He's trying to kill a man, and we'll get to that in a minute here. John is writing after 70 AD, and the Romans have already destroyed Jerusalem here. The temple is gone. The insurrection has been put down. The, the Romans have done their worst. And also, he, he gives the name of Malchus, which is interesting. Now, if, if John is making up a fictional account of this night, why would he give the name and address of the victim in this thing? Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Everybody knows where that guy lives. Everyone knows that household. And we're not so far in, away in time that maybe even Malchus is alive or the, his members of his family are alive and still working for the high priest or that family. John's dropping some seriously verifiable details here. If, he's, if you're going to make up a fictional story that you know is not true, why would you put such a detail in there? And there's other details that are like that in, in this story, which is interesting. Nobody writing a fictional story that they know to be false would purport to be, but would purport to be true, would include a verifiable detail such as the name and address of Malchus. It just wouldn't happen. Now, all four Gospels record that Peter denied Jesus three times on the night of his arrest. Okay? But only John records that it was Peter who did the sword play. Now, let's think about this. I need a crash dummy. Daniel, can I borrow you here? Okay. You see, I have no swords in my hands. All right, raise your right hand. Okay, raise your left hand. Just checking, making sure all you people understand this, okay? Now, he cut off his right ear. What's your, which one's your right ear again? That one. Okay, I'm a right-handed man. We're just assuming Peter's a right-handed man. How do I cut off the right ear with a sword? And this, the sword we're talking about here is not some long combat sword. We're talking a, a short sword, the kind of thing a man can easily carry about. In fact, the word, I don't know how to pronounce it in Greek, but the, we get the same word machete from that word. So we're talking about a blade, 
like this, chopping and pointing style blade, probably had about 16 to 18 inches of length, maybe 14. But we're not talking a knife. We're talking a, something which he's using it as a swinging, chopping weapon. Okay? How do I get Daniel's right ear off if I'm a right-handed man? It's not an easy shot on somebody facing me. If I... No, 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 no. Wait, wait, I'm not done. Not done. I still... <laughs> if I come down with a sword on his head, I'm going to come down right here. I'm going to chop off his left ear as a right-handed man. In fact, I looked through all kinds of art on this, okay, all kinds of pictures that people have painted for, you know, thousands of years, and it's really awesome, and totally awkward. This one has, has the stroke, that he, Peter is holding the sword like this, and coming down, it's like, eh, nobody does that. It's the most unnatural. If I'm going to hit him, I'm going to hit him like this, okay, unless, turn around. If I'm attacking him from behind, guess where I'm going to hit him? Right there. Okay, and only one of those old ancient pictures, you can have a seat, only one of those old ancient pictures shows Malchus being attacked from behind. Now, you think, think about the, the, the physics of this, okay? If, I, if he's going to get the... Try, if, if a right-handed man strikes at somebody on the left side, that angle's going to come either at the horizontal or it's going to come in at the maximum, about 45, 50 degrees, like this, and it's an awkward backhanded stroke. It's the stroke you use after you've already swung. That's a secondary stroke. It's not a primary attack stroke, okay, if you know your angles and cuts and all that. If I come out like this, that's the first stroke. Now the sword's over here. Now I'm going to do a backhand, and it's, we don't have that being portrayed in the gospel. Okay, so the soldiers for, surged forward to restrain Jesus. Malchus probably got in between Peter and Jesus, Facing Jesus with his back toward Peter, Peter took the opportunity to strike at Malchus's head from behind. That's a killing blow. Peter is not fooling around here. He's coming in and striking at the back of the man's head, and he missed and just took his ear off. And from the sound of it, he took his ear off like this, not like that. Okay, his ear was probably just hanging there because we know Jesus just walks up and touches him and heals him. He doesn't pick up the ear and kind of screw it back in. You know, he just I, you can just see it very, very quickly, Jesus going, just putting it back up and healing it. Which means Malchus would have been covered in blood too. Think about it. His ear was just flat hacked off. And what do you have here? You've got the juggler. You've got the carotid arteries. Oh, this is, this is not a... This is no petty crime. This isn't simple assault. Okay, this is attempted murder. He had tried to kill this guy. Either way, this is a killing blow. Blood supply, it would have been a bloody mess. John 18. Let's go, that's the first act. That's... Peter, now, now put yourself in Peter's position. Jesus is arrested. He's taken. What do you think is going to happen to you, Peter? You just, and there's torches and lanterns around. This is not a pitch black kind of scene, and you pulled a sword, and you cut a man's ear off, tried to kill him. And now Jesus is being arrested, and all the disciples scatter, right? But they follow along. 
That took an incredible bravery for Peter to follow. Think about it. I mean, you, he could have been caught literally red-handed here. That's what that means, red-handed. Caught with the blood on your hands, all right? So now he's going to... Let's go to John. If you have your Bibles, open to John 18, 15 through 18. We're going to keep them open there to John 18 for a while. Simon Peter, verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple, and John always refers to them himself that way in this gospel. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. And you can almost think that Peter's kind of relieved because where's he going? Whose house is this? This is the high priest's house. And who did he just try to kill? The servant of the high priest. He literally is walking into the house of the man he just tried to murder. Following Jesus, and he knows this is, this is not going good. So Simon Peter and John, they get there, and John knows the high priest, or is known to the high priest, and he goes in, and Peter's like, they're like, who are you? So John goes in, okay, John eventually comes back. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Now, this servant girl is all of a sudden, this is some special guy. Okay, no, he's with me. He stopped. doesn't say what stopped him. or Did he just decide not to go in, or was he stopped there? Like, who are you? And John comes back and says, no, he's with me. And Peter goes in. Now, Peter's walking into probably the most dangerous place Peter could be at that time. Aren't you one of this man's disciples? You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. And immediately John states, It was cold, and the servants of the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing there with them, warming himself. All the other accounts of this girl's encounter happened at that fire. They all mention that, that Peter comes in and is standing by the fire. Okay, sitting, standing around the fire. There's a bunch of other people there. And if you read all the parallel accounts of it, you can assemble kind of a fuller picture of what was actually going on, what was happening. Imagine a group of people, and this servant girl, Peter walks in, he, he goes up to the fire, and she comes up and looks at him in the firelight and says, weren't you one of his disciples too? He replied, I'm not. Hmm. It puts a little bit of weight, though, a little bit of emotional pressure behind Peter to, for him to deny this, doesn't it? This is not him, you know, at the company picnic. And someone says, aren't you a Christian? And you're like, eh. You're not. There's some real penalty here. He just tried to kill a man who lives in this house. Jesus is arrested and being interrogated right over there. And he comes in. Aren't you one of his disciples? No. No. He denies it. She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants of the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. That's one of those other incidental kind of details that's just thrown into a story. It doesn't really advance the plot so much to say it was cold and they were standing around a fire. 
Overnight lows in Jerusalem during that first week uh, of April run in the highs, high 40s to low 50s. And this is, these guys aren't standing around wearing down jackets and Gore-Tex. They're just kind of wrapped in their first century clothes, and it's cold. 40, high 40s is cold if you're standing around all night. So they're sitting around a fire. But it's easy to see how Peter's driven closer to this fire, which is also illuminating his appearance. And they're listening to the interrogation of Jesus in there, and one of the guards smacks Jesus across the face. They're roughing him up. It's not looking good. And there's Peter in the house of the man he tried to kill. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, aren't you one of his disciples too? He, he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, this is John 18, 25 to 26, one of the high priests says, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Oh. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Like, I was there, you were there too. And there he is, having just tried to kill the man who's living in this very house. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter, again, Peter denied it, and in that moment, a rooster began to crow. You know, the, the synoptists give very similar accounts of this, but not in, in quite excruciatingly horrible detail that John does. That there he is... Yeah, this third denial really ramps up the danger level. Peter's in the home of the man he tried to kill. His life is in danger if he's discovered and apprehended. He would be, there would be four crosses on that hill, believe me. There's no coming back from what Peter had done. Probably Malchus was there as well. Think about that. Where else would Malchus have gone after he was attacked and healed in the garden? But he would go home. So probably somewhere in this place is Malchus trying to explain what happened to him. And maybe he doesn't even understand it. I mean, the guy who hit him hit him from behind. He's down. He gets up. He's covered with blood. Jesus stops the fight, heals him. And we don't hear about Malchus again. But where else would he have gone other than home with this arrest party? I can imagine Malchus walking in. And I don't know if he was married or what, you know. Or Can you imagine him walking in and his wife is there? Malchus, what happened to you? I'm okay. Well, clearly not. You're covered in blood. But I'm okay. Look, I'm, I'm fine. Just clean it up. Clean it up. Yeah, it's... So whose blood is this? Well, it's mine. Then you're not okay. What happened? We missed it. What, how do you explain? I don't know. I don't get it either. Somebody hit me. And Jesus healed it. He stopped the fight and he healed me. And now I'm covered with blood. And I don't have a scratch on me. Well, it must be someone else's blood. No. There was no one else cut there. I didn't cut anybody. It's my blood, but not my wound. You know, there's nothing there. You can, can you imagine the confusion that would have brought at Jesus's interrogation, his trial there, if they had brought Malchus forward? Malchus, tell us what happened the night in the garden. Well, we went to arrest him and somebody behind me tried to kill me and then Jesus healed. Wait, what? You mean this man we're trying to crucify healed you, stopped the fight and healed you? Okay, Malchus, this doesn't really fit the narrative. Can you go change your shirt at least if we're going to bring you forward, you know? 
Malchus isn't interrogated. He's not brought forward. He's not. But we do have an eyewitness to Malchus getting hit, and that was a relative of his who was also there. And he's the one challenging Peter. And Peter is deathly afraid here, and he denies it. And right then, the rooster crows. This is hard. And then Peter gets, or Jesus gets bundled off. I take him to somewhere else. I forget who the next part of the interrogation trial was, was all about. But Peter is <clears throat> out of the scene here. Now, Jesus had told him, remember? Jesus had already told him, before the rooster crows tonight, you're going to deny you even know me three times. So Jesus knew this was going to go down. Jesus knew it was going to happen. And let him know beforehand who he really is. I know who you are. Jesus knew who, what was in a man. You know, he didn't need anyone's uh, uh, counsel as to who, what a person was made out of. He knew them. It's interesting that after, on that, that Easter, the, the resurrection, Mark 16, 7. Okay, remember the Mary's at the tomb, and she sees a young man, angel, there in the tomb, in the tomb and, and tells him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The angel's message there. Tell his disciples and Peter. Not to say that Peter is no longer a disciple, but to single Peter out as someone who especially needs to hear this. Okay, don't go tell the disciples and Peter like, yeah, okay, I guess I'm not part of that. Maybe Peter was willing to, was, was ready to exclude himself because of his denials and attempted murder and the guilt that he had over betraying not only his best friend, but somebody he promised that he would die for. And he not gets to now know how weak he is, how incapable he is. Yeah, and he steps in it up to his thigh here. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, John chapter 21, this is, this is a great story. I love this. John 21, 1 through 3. And this is the third act. You have the crime, the denial of the crime, and now the pardon of the crime. John 21, 1 through 3. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. What were they doing? They're doing nothing. They're not traveling around preaching the gospel. Jesus had died been executed. They'd already seen him, but Peter, I, I, can you imagine? I, I don't have to imagine where he's at in this, at this point because I got my own story. You know, as a pastor, missionary, all that stuff, suddenly I found myself as the divorced man inspecting foreclosures in Michigan. Out of the ministry, out of just, what am I going to do now the rest of my life? I've, I've kind of been there at this point in his life. And Peter says, I'm going out to fish, Simon <clears throat> Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. There's no debate. 
It's like Peter, no, he told us to wait here. We're going to wait. And Peter's like, I'm not waiting around. I'm, I'm going to go fishing. Now, Peter was a fisherman. He grew up fishing. His family, he comes from a long line of fishermen. They had a fishing business. He had boats and nets and all the gear that you do for fishing. And there's various ways they fished on Lake Galilee, which is a freshwater lake. It's not an ocean. It's not a sea. It's a freshwater lake. It's not all that big either. If you look at it on a map, it's not huge. It's big. You wouldn't want to get caught out in the middle of it in a storm, but it's not the biggest place, the biggest body of water in the world, but it certainly is the biggest body of water in that area. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. They said, we'll go with you. No debate here. You could just imagine these guys sitting around thinking, what are we going to do? And Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. Yep, okay. So they went out and got into, into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, a little bit about fishing in the first century. There's different ways they could do that. They had a, a thing called a trammel net, and when, and when Jesus first meets Peter, he says, lower your nets again. He says, lower your nets again. It's a different kind of net. That's like a, big, like a big purse that they would drop down behind the boat and pull it up and then draw it in again. Okay, trammel net. This night they're using a cast net. Have you ever seen anybody use a cast net? It's really cool and it's really hard to do. Okay, there's a certain way, and there's different, different places have different ways of throwing a net. But the idea of a cast net, it's a big round circular net, kind of like a parachute. And you, you pick, it has ropes and things to tie onto it, and there's different, different nets use different methods. But the idea is this big round circular net, and it's got little weights all around the outside of it. So you throw this thing out across the water, and it sinks to the bottom, goes down. Then when you pull it up, it kind of gathers itself together, and those weights come up. And you... Now, there's also a way, uh, a system of cast net in this time where the person would throw the net and have to swim down and actually gather it from the bottom. So we don't know exactly. It's, this isn't, you know, Peter's fishing show. They're just, just from the, the words that are being used, we can tell that this night they were using a cast net. Because the trammel net took a lot more work to prepare. It's not something they kind of think, hey, I'm going to go fishing and jump in a boat and go set a trammel net. It's a lot of prep work during the day to get all that stuff set up properly so you can, you can use this. But there's also set up for a, for a cast net. Imagine you're gathering up that net, and you gather it up, and some of them you have to hold pieces of it in your mouth, and there's certain ways you drape it over your arms, and you have to hold it a certain way. And then you, you take it, and you swing your whole body back, and then you fling it out like this, and you have to let it all go in a certain pattern or else you're just throwing a big tangled mess of weights and nets so it's going to hit the water and not catch anything. You have to get it spinning and flare out in a certain way to get a good throw. And then it goes down, you pull it in, you take out your fish, you gather it all up, you bunch it up, and you're going to stand there again, and you're going to spin, and you're going to throw that thing. But you're on a boat, and there's all kinds of stuff on boats. There's a mast, there's oars, there's who knows what and other people. And all of those people are going to sit in certain places so the guy who, whoever's throwing the net doesn't whap them. Can you imagine? I'm going to throw my net. It's got maybe 20 pounds of lead weights in the bottom of it, and I'm just going to wham! Don't want to be in the way, right? You're going to sit somewhere where the net guy's not going to clobber you with all those weights, or you're not going to tangle it. Everything in the boat is moved out of the way for whoever is throwing that net. Okay, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Peter returned to what he knew, fishing. This was life within the scope of his personal abilities. This is what he knew how to do. He knew he could make a decent living doing this. Having totally blown it with Jesus, I mean, to the point where he could probably barely lift his eyes and look at Jesus. Knowing if the government finds out what he had done, he'd be executed. Maybe he needs to lay low from that whole preaching thing. John 21, verses 4 through 6. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. You can imagine, it's a dark morning. The sun's probably not up. Probably early, you know, that light, light before the dawn. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. Now, if i am got this whole area of my deck cleared and I'm throwing my net from this side, which is the left side of the boat, if the boat's facing this way, throw your net from the right side of the boat and you'll find some. If I want to throw my net over here, well, you would just turn the boat. Why would I climb through all the people, make everybody get out of the way, and then throw my net over here? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense from a fishing point of view. But he does it. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Can you imagine? I mean, cast netters, they throw and they throw and they throw, and the idea is to cast it on a school of fish. And not all the fish in Lake, uh, uh, Lake Galilee actually school. There's several different kinds of fish. They had a fish called a binny, which is about this big, a very large fish. Looks sort of like a catfish. That was the fish that when, when Jesus tells them to go throw your line in and catch a fish, then whatever you find in his mouth, take and pay the tax. Also an appropriate message for this time of year. But he throws it in there, and that would have been a binny. But binny don't school. They're just kind of solitary fish. They're ones to catch. So you're trying to throw this thing over a school of fish and get a, get a big catch like that. And your perfect throw would land over a, some kind of a school of fish. And it would go down and... and you get all those fish at once. John 21, 7 through 14. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Again, we have that incredible impulsiveness of, of Peter here. Now, why is he stripped down? Some say it's because he was diving in the water to get those nets, but the fact that they were able to pull it up with a fish would suggest otherwise, okay? Probably it's just because he's been throwing a net, and he doesn't want to get tangled in, that, in all those clothes and stuff, so he was kind of stripped down to, to his Speedo, I guess, and has to wrap up, and then he dives in the water fully clothed, which is kind of counterintuitive as well, okay? He just wants to get there. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Isn't this the, the coolest scene? I mean, I've sat around a lot of campfires, cooked a lot of fish over campfires and this kind of thing. And I know I just identify with this moment that they get there and there's Jesus on the beach cooking them breakfast. Got a fire going. Peter climbing out of the water, sopping wet 
his outer garment, he just swam to shore with his clothes on. You know, this is, you know, he, he's dripping wet head to toe. Other guys are dragging this net full of fish, which they can barely move. Jesus said to them, verse 10, Bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even so, with, even with so many fish, the net was not torn. All kinds of people have tried to come up with a significance for this 153 fish. What does it mean, 153 fish? And you can tell all these Bible scholar guys have never been fishing. It's just obvious, you know? It's like some of you guys never caught a bunch of fish, and it shows, you know? 153 fish, and the net didn't even break. They're professional fishermen. These guys do this for a living. This is a lifetime haul. They've never, they've caught a lot of fish before. Oh, remember that time we pulled it up, and there was like 25. Now, what kind of fish are we talking about? Most likely, the, uh, the mushed, I don't know how to pronounce it in Arabic, but the chilapia galilea. You've had tilapia at, tilapia at your frozen tilapia? Yeah, they live in Lake Galilee. And there's a, there's a species of them that grows to about four and a half to five pounds, the large one, and they max out, four and a half to five pounds. Can you imagine 153, most likely, because it's one of the only fish other than sardines that school in the lake. You have the tilapia, which will school, and you have these little sardines. When the little boy was, they had... The, the fish in the loaves, they were probably uh, Kinneret sardines, which are the Lake Galilee sardines, which are maybe six, seven inches long at max. Then they catch those with a whole different net. But you couldn't, it, it, you're not going to throw over a school of them and get enough to break your net. We're talking, if those fish weighed about four and a half to five pounds, we're talking about 700 to 750 pounds of fish in that net. That's why they're surprised it didn't break. And that's why they counted these fish. They're like, one, two, 153 large fish. They're just like, ka-ching, because that's money to them. That's what they do for a living. You know, this is striking it rich for them. But even with so many who are you, they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So there's... There's Peter, again, sitting by the fireside, face illuminated by the fire, sitting there with Jesus. Jesus, They're eating fish, large fish, eating bread, that moment of fellowship. And it doesn't record any conversation there other than when Jesus kind of breaks the silence on that. There's not a whole lot of small talk. There's no, no record of any small talk or any, any, any previous discussion. John 21, verse 15 and verse 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's a couple things I want you to notice here. He doesn't call him Peter. Where did Peter get that name? From Jesus, yeah. Jesus renamed him Peter. 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John. He hadn't been called that in a long time. You have to go back all the way to the day that he was a professional fisherman and Jesus called him out of that profession to follow him. And later, Jesus gives him a new name. Calls him Peter, which means the rock. Simon, son of John. He had grown up all of his life as a fisherman. Simon, son of John and sons. You know, that was their brand. They were fishermen. Probably had a family, had a bunch of boats. The way it used to work out of that hall, the captain or the, the owner of the boat got a percentage, the captain got a percentage, and everybody else who worked on it got a percentage. And if you were the guy who, made, who repaired the nets all day after that, you got a double portion. So everybody had their cut of the hall that came out of the, the, the lake. The owner of the boat, the captain of the boat, is responsible for where they're going to fish and does, has to actually think it. Everyone got it. So Simon's son of John was the guy who made his living fishing. Simon, son of John, was the guy who would have inherited that business and trained his own sons in how to fish. Simon, son of John, was Simon before he met Jesus, before he was called to preach the gospel, before he had seen all the miracles. Simon, son of John, was who Peter is on his own. Do you love me more than these? And again, the guys go nuts in the commentaries, the speculation do you love me more than these, these disciples? Do you love me more than these guys do? Or as they're sitting there, literally with fish all over their fingers, pick, take, using fish bones to pick fish out of their teeth, do you love me more than these? After Peter decides he's going to go back to fishing for not knowing what else to do, do you love me more than these? I think Jesus is talking about the fish. I, don't, I think people make it way, too much, way more complicated than it needs to be. On your own, you can go back to fishing. And I, I think Jesus is saying, if, if that's really what you want to do, <clears throat> I can bless you with that. On your own strength, you can do nothing. Okay? But with me, yeah, I can bless you. I can bless you with the biggest haul of fish you've ever had in your entire life. I can blow your boat out of the water with fish. If that's what you really want. I think he was sending him that signal. Simon, son of John. You want to be a fisherman? I can bless you as a fisherman. But that's not what he asks him. He asks him, what is your heart? Where is your heart in this? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. It's interesting, Jesus uses the word agape. That's that perfect love. Do you love me more than these? The Greek dictionary says, properly to prefer to love for the believer, preferring to live through Christ, embracing God's will, choosing his choices, and obeying them through his power. Agape preeminently refers to what God prefers as he is love. This is that perfect love of God. Do you love me? And Peter responds with the word phileo, which is properly warm affection, intimate friendship, characterized by tender, heartfelt consideration and kinship. I love you like a brother. Jesus asked him, do you love me? Just that unrestrained, 
unbridled love. And he's like, I love you like a brother. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Oh, Jesus said the first time, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. Which do you prefer, Peter, fish or lamb? What's on the menu for the rest of your life? You're going to catch fish? You're going to feed my lambs? What's it going to be? That's why I also think it was, he was talking about the fish there. Feed my lambs. Don't catch fish. Feed my lambs. The second time, again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, agape. He answered, phileo. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And there he uses the word for shepherd. Lead my sheep. Take care of my sheep. You be the shepherd. Feed my lambs. Guide my sheep. He's restoring him to a place of leadership. The third time, verse 17, he said to him, Simon, son of God, do you love me? And here Jesus uses that word phileo. He drops the agape. He kind of lowers the bar. He's like, do you love me? It's all right, folks. <laughs> Simon, son of John, do you love me? And there he's used that fellow. It's like, okay, do you even, is that where you're at? Is that the best we can do? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? I think Peter now is getting it. He denied him three times, and now he's getting, Jesus is asking him to tell, tell me you love me. Tell me you love me. Tell me you love me. And then redirects his career after each one. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And you can hear that his voice is like choked up here. He's fighting to maintain his, his composure. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Have you been there? Have you screwed up? Where are you in the story in terms of how you've messed up in your life? Are you at that point where you just messed up, you just blew it bad, and now it's like, I can't even look him in the face. How could I ever be in his service again? I was driving down the road one time, highway in, in Pennsylvania, a long, one of those long trips, and I'm listening, I'm listening to the radio, and I get, oh, there's this guy preaching, an old guy. And you could tell this man was humbled. Something had happened in his life that he was humble. And he's talking and he's bringing out some really deep points from Scripture. And you can tell it's coming from a place in him where at some point in his life he had been cut off at the knees. And he had learned the mercy and the grace of God. Just this old guy preaching. And I'm listening thinking, who is this guy? You know, and he's just really, really good. You know who he was at the end? It was Jimmy Swaggart. Remember him? Famous televangelist and all that, Jimmy Swaggart. And he, yeah, he, he blew it bad in his ministry. I guess the Lord restored him at some point. And there he was. And man, you could hear it. You could tell. This guy was not, none of that pompous, arrogant showman. He was a man who had been humbled thoroughly. And I am learning from this guy. And that was him. That was Jimmy Swaggart. You know, God is going to take... Peter, and he's going to pour out his power into Peter's life. He's going to pour down power, and he's going to preach, and like 3,000 people are going to get saved, you know, here in a little bit, and all this stuff. And he couldn't do that to that arrogant man who swore that he would die for you and, and all that. 
Peter had to learn about himself in all this. Peter had to be struck with his own weakness. He had to confront who he actually is apart from Christ. And he does that in the garden. He tries to kill Malchus, and now he's literally red-handed, bloody, guilty, goes to the guy's house, and now they're confronting him. Aren't you? Didn't I see you there? No, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I can't face it even. And now he's so downcast that God sends an angel, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. So he goes to Galilee, and he's like, man, what do I... I'm I'm just going to fish. I'm going to be a fisherman. Goes off to fish and catches nothing. And then Jesus gives him the world record haul of fish that night. And then breaks the ice and gives him a chance to declare his love for him three times. Jesus is so gracious here. You know what I mean? There's no hint. There's just no hint of of chastising him. There's no hint of any of that. And he restores him. Jesus knew Peter's heart. What will you have, fish or lamb? He knew Peter's heart, and the next thing he spoke was a prophecy of Peter's crucifixion. Play a role in this, he's telling him. Take up your cross and follow me. Go forward into this with your heart and your hands wide open. Hold on to nothing of your former life. Do you love him more than these? Are you willing to hold the things of this world with a light hand and cling to him for all your worth? He will never leave you nor forsake you, and nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Are you convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Has it come into focus yet? Do you get it? You accepted a role. Are you going to walk away now that you've begun to read the script? This story does not end in death. It ends in resurrection. And you don't get to do that without pain. For the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Peter went from denial, literally fleeing at the accusation of a girl, I mean, Peter, you got beat by a girl. That's how weak he was. Peter went from denial, hiding from the authorities, and to start returning to a life of anonymity as a fisherman to preaching Christ in the temple courts, leading the church and eventually dying a martyr's death. He must have been strong to do all that, right? You think Peter was strong? I don't think so. Peter knew how weak he was. Peter's strength gave out in the light of a fire and the accusation of a little girl. He met true strength in the light of another fire illuminating the face of Christ. There's the true strength. So my question is, I don't know what these are in your life. Do you love Jesus more than what those things are? Have you screwed up? Are you that person who can't look him in the face? Because you can. Because that's who he is. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he wants to restore you, wants to bring you to a place of maximum enjoyment in his kingdom, maximum benefit to other people, to your brothers and sisters. That's what he's called you to, that beautiful place. And I will leave you with that question today. And the opportunity, return to him. Come back, sit at his fire. Let him feed you fish.